This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Climate change is raising sea levels, and soon low-lying coastal areas will be underwater. In the United States, starting with Miami, New Orleans, and Houston, and elsewhere in the world, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Mumbai. But the most severe threat, the brunt of the suffering, is coming first to low-lying islands around the world, even though they are the least responsible for global warming. And now we have a remarkable book about what we're losing. It's called Sea Change. It's an atlas, a book of maps of the present and the future. But because we are losing not only land, but also people, wildlife, fresh water, landscapes, and cultures, this is also a book of poetry, art, and essays by people who live in island nations. The author is Christina Gerhardt. She teaches at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. She's a senior fellow at UC Berkeley, and she's been the Baron Visiting Professor of Environment and the Humanities at Princeton. Her environmental journalism has been published in The Guardian, The Progressive, The Washington Monthly, and The Nation. We reached her today in San Francisco. Tina Gerhardt, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's great to be with you, John. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're talking today about huge islands like Greenland, but also tiny remote islands that we've barely heard of, Tuvalu, Tonga, the Marshalls, and islands we hear about all the time, the Bahamas, Jamaica, Cuba. Puerto Rico. People think of sea level rise as something like the water in a bathtub rising as it fills, but that's not really the way it works with climate change, and that's why mapping sea level rise is a challenge. Mostly the maps in your book show what islands will look like in 2050 and 2100. Your maps show what will be gone and what will remain of the land area. But that's not just a matter of elevation, of height above sea level. Please explain. I talked to my colleague at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, Chip Fletcher, who's an oceanographer early on in this project. And he said, you know what? One of the common misconceptions people have about sea level rise is that it's a line and that it's only coming at you from the coastline. And then he went on to explain the bathtub model. If you're thinking about sea level rise as being in a bathtub and that line going up, you're not tracking a couple of things. First off, a huge issue with sea level rise is a zone of inundations, being intermittently flooded and flooded often enough that, that life basically becomes untenable. The other thing that's so important with regard to the bathtub model, you mentioned at the top, sea level rise is not a story about water. It's a story about geology. You need to look at the geology of the island. And so the Bahamas is an important example because like its neighboring Florida, it consists of, of limestone, which I refer to as the Swiss cheese of geology. It's porous. It not only allows water to seep up from underneath, it actually soaks up the water. And Christina Hill, a colleague here at UC Berkeley, has done a lot of work about how important water coming up from underneath is. You start with Greenland, the world's largest island in the world's smallest ocean. You went to Greenland. Did you fly in? We arrived by a boat. 
and you hear this gentle popping sound from a distance. And as you get closer, it's sort of like ice cubes being dropped in a glass of, of warm liquid. They start crackling as the air bubbles escape and they're melting. And then the noise becomes larger and larger. So it's the symphony that just escalates into groaning. It's like the sound of a whale or something like that. There's this rumble, this roar as the water is rushing. There's this clap and slap sound as the ice caves uh, start to, to calve off and crash into the sea with this thunderous noise. So I start with Greenland because it is the source of sea level rise. So when these glaciers I just described start to melt, they affect islands halfway around the globe. For example, the Republic of Marshall Islands that you mentioned. It rained in Greenland, you report, in 2021. How much did it rain? No one knows how much it rained on Greenland because there's no rain gauges on Greenland. You tell the fascinating story of the Inuit maps of the coastline of Greenland. They are carved wooden relief maps. Amazing. Tell us about them. They are basically three-dimensional and they they are carved out of wood and they document the coastline. But what's most important about them is that the stories that were relayed by the elders to younger people going out along the coastline was what mattered most. So it was a tool intended to help encourage their memory or memorizing of the coastline. The map itself isn't what mattered. So when we think about walking, you know, we're in a new neighborhood, we pull out our phone, we're on Google Maps, we're trying to figure out how to get there. That map is our guide, right? Or if you know we're, we're voyaging, we might still be old-fashioned and have paper maps. That's the opposite of how these maps were used. They're support devices. They're mnemonic devices that help aid memory. And what most matters is the oral stories and the memorizing of the details. So you could throw the map aside and hopefully have it in, you know, in, your, in your mind and in your body. You said that when the glaciers melt in Greenland, the places that are flooded include the Marshall Islands on the other side of the world in the South Pacific. The Marshalls are about six and a half feet above sea level right now. The whole thing will probably be underwater in the next 20 to 50 years. 42,000 people, something like that, live there this year. They have no higher ground where they can find refuge. The Marshallese also have maps. They are world famous navigators of the South Pacific. I learned they have something called stick charts that they used to navigate the Pacific Ocean. Right. Just to back up, they're one of the four island nations most at risk. The other ones are Kiribati and Tuvalu in the Pacific and then the Maldives in the Indian Ocean. Now, these stick charts that you mentioned are these incredibly beautiful maps that the Marshallese have developed. A lot of uh, islanders in the Pacific are incredible navigators. When uh, people who are colonizing from the North and the West, mainly from Europe, came to the Pacific, they were, they were gobsmacked, to put it in British terms, by the fact that these navigators could travel without the use of things like magnetic compasses, latitude, longitude, etc. So what the stick charts in particular um, are used to navigate the Pacific Ocean. They're made of palm ribs and sticks that are bound by coconut fiber. And what they what they document are swells. Swells are are longer than waves and they're deeper than waves. 
And importantly, if they bounce around, if they move, if they hit an island, they refract in a different way because of that interruption of their flow. And so having a stick chart that documents the swells, again, this is a mnemonic tool, you have to commit this to memory, means that you are reading the waves, you're reading the swells, you're reading the water, basically. And then I have a whole section about how they're reading clouds. They're these furry um, eyebrows that sort of stick up like like arched, you know, pointing to the top, sort of like a, a peak of a mountain. And when you see those on the horizon, even if you can't see an island, you know that there's an island underneath because that's why those eyebrows are there. So there's really an incredible ability to read water, to read clouds, and to read birds that are an important part of oceanic navigation. So the facts you map in sea change are heartbreaking, but the issue for you is not only what is being lost, but what can be saved and how. Uh, what are some of your favorite examples of that? Yeah, I center uh, predominantly, but not exclusively, Black and Indigenous Islander voices because I wanted to hear the story of Islanders told from their vantage point both about the impacts of sea level rise, the solutions to it, which are often solutions they themselves are putting forward, lacking international support of various sorts, um, the engineering knowledge or, or funding. But um, one of the things I also talk about is their history and their culture. So I refer to sea change as a symphony. It weaves together, as you mentioned, art, maps, poems, the texts uh, that I wrote, scientific illustrations. So it's really polyvocal or polyphonic. And the reason I think it's important to include the history and the culture is because I think we have enough studies to indicate that sea level rise is an issue. The climate crisis is an issue. People don't really connect with data sets. I really think science is important. I don't want to be you know, misunderstood as saying it's unimportant. But the way that we really connect or care or empathize is to hear the stories from islanders about their islands. And so a couple of things that struck me coming back to your question, there's a remarkable affinity that Islanders feel among themselves. When I moved to Hawaii, you mentioned I teach there a decade ago to take up the teaching position. I quickly noticed an affinity that people in Hawaii feel with people of the Philippines, with people of Guam, and then with people further afield in the Caribbean from Cuba and from Puerto Rico. And I was a little surprised by that. And then the reason when you think about it is simple. Those are all island territories that were ceded to the U.S. when the U.S. won the Spanish-U.S. war. And so colonialism is a thread that runs through my book because it structures, it structures the situation of islands and a lot of the inequities that islanders are forced to live with. Some of the uh, effects of that colonialism uh, occurred, at least in my, my lifetime, notably in the Marshall Islands. And it's the reason why a third of the Marshall Islands population has moved to the United States, mostly to Hawaii, but also for some reason to Arkansas. The United States admits the Marshallese not as climate refugees, but in compensation. In compensation for what? because the U.S. detonated a series of nuclear bombs in the Pacific, specifically at Marshall, in the Marshall Islands in the 40s and in the 50s. They're not the only nation that did this. France participated in these tests too. But as a result of these tests, there's a very high percentage of cancer rates in the Marshall Islands. 43 nuclear tests conducted right. by the United States, 1948 to 19. 19- 
1958. And closer to home, the United States, I, I learned from your seat change book, now has its own climate refugees. The first lived on an island near New Orleans, the Ile de Jean Charles. What is happening there? Right. So Ile de Jean Charles shrunk by an incredible 98%. So the amount of land loss there is just remarkable. And I remember when I was working on the map for Ile de Jean Charles, which, you know, maybe you have pulled up in front of you, but the cartographer, you mentioned earlier, right, that the maps on um, in sea change, show the situation of the island currently, then in 2050 with sea level rise impacting it, and then by the end of the century, 2100. So I had the cartographer Molly Roy create the third panel for 2100 as just blue. And she was trying to figure out what her work was, right? Like, <laughs> what is she supposed to do? And I said, you're literally supposed to just give the viewer a blue slide to indicate that Ile de Jean Charles will very likely be gone by the end of the century. So it's already lost 98% of its landmass. And this is due to both um, sea level rise and also eroding coastlines. They've been eroding since about 1950. I learned from your book that the Ile de Jean Charles is not only suffering from sea level rise, but from sinking, from subsidence which is happening in other places, in the Solomons, in Samoa, in Manhattan, something else to worry about. Why is that happening? It's happening because of the amount of groundwater and even more so the amount of oil that has been pulled out. So when you pull all of these fluids out of the soil, the soil then compacts, right? Um, and it's disproportionately hitting the Gulf of Mexico and the East Coast. But the other reason is due to uh, shifts in tectonic plates. So basically, thousands of, of, of years ago, with the glaciers retreating, a long story short is that the island bulbed up a little bit. And now that land is starting to slowly sink into place again. I understand the United States government awarded $48 million to resettle the residents of the Ile de Saint-Charles, but the residents have voted against resettlement twice. Who are they and, and how do you explain their vote? The inhabitants of Ile de Jean-Charles are from three different indigenous tribes, um, the Biloxi, the Chittimacha, and the Choctaw tribes. They moved into the area to avoid the forced displacement of indigenous people uh, created by the 1830 Indian Removal Act. And so they decided not to move where people were forcibly relocated and moved instead to Ile de Jean Charles around them where they've been living since. Um, they voted against because the new areas that, that were created for them to live in were initially intended only for them to be living in and then were opened up for other people to also live in. So that was a huge reason why. And then it wasn't clear that the entire tribe or group of people who were living on Ile de Jean Charles would be able to live in this newly created area. So it's about that, you know, cohesion of resettlement that was really the issue. Finally, why is it important to make islands around the globe visible and the plight of their people clear and relevant to everyone? We're all connected. 
Um, and I think that's really important to keep in mind. An injury to one is an injury to all, as numerous people have put it, right? So see, and this is why I start with Greenland, and I close that chapter on Greenland talking about the impact on the Marshall Islands, which doesn't come up until halfway through the book, because the melting Greenland is affecting the inhabitants of Marshall Islands, as you mentioned, because we, if we are continental land dwellers listening to this program, if uh, we are the source of historically the largest emissions around the world. So we are responsible for creating the climate crisis. I believe in collective solutions, meaning political or divest from fossil fuels or, you know, encourage our politicians to not subsidize them or vote out of office politicians who do subsidize them, et cetera. I encourage those kinds of actions more than individualized ones. I do think any level of action is better than inaction. So this is why I think we on the mainland U.S., if that's where your listeners are based, uh, should care about this story. It really is a story about everyone. You also mentioned the fact that you know, 40% of, of the U.S. Uh, is living along coastlines, translated to different numbers, that's 13 million people. So what happens on islands is also a harbinger of the fate that awaits a lot of people living in coastal communities in the U.S. Rebecca Solnit calls The Sea Change Atlas by Christina Gerhardt stunning. Elizabeth Colbert of The New Yorker calls it at once lyrical and clear-sighted. Tina Thank you for this amazing book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on, John. It's been wonderful to be with you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.